Hello, welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. Your host, Raisa Kabir. In this episode, I had the privilege to sit down and chat with Dr. Mohammed Mandani. Dr. Mandani is a professor, pharmacist, and epidemiologist. He's a vice president of data science and advanced analytics at Unity Health Toronto and director of the University of Toronto Tamerdi Center for Artificial Intelligence Research and Education in Medicine. His team bridges advanced analytics, including machine learning, with clinical and management decision-making to improve patient outcomes and hospital efficiency. Dr. Mamdani is also a professor in the Tamardi Faculty of Medicine, the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy, and the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation of the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. In this episode, we talk about Dr. Mamdani's journey to the intersection of AI and medicine. I truly got to learn a lot from him and from his past projects and current projects. Please take a listen and enjoy. Hello, Dr. Ramdani. Welcome to the Mammal Podcast. Thank you for yeah. joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we'll start off our podcast with a question that we ask all of our guests. Can you tell us a little bit about your path and how you eventually came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning? Sure. Um, I mean, part of it actually was was just dumb luck, to be honest. Uh, and and uh, basically trying to understand um, and go deeper in terms of this whole concept of truth and as it relates to healthcare. Um, so what do I mean by that? Um, kind of fascinated by what people believe and you know, as human beings, we have five senses, um, and those five senses basically assemble what we believe to be true. Uh, and each person's truth may be different than others. And, uh, I guess that's where we differentiate belief from truth. Um, and I know this is much, probably much more philosophical than you'd want to, to hear about, but you know, I think those are important distinctions because, uh, belief and truth are not always the same. And if I had to pick one, I'd pick belief every day because um, belief is what really drives behavior, right? Not so much the truth. And how do, the, how do I possibly relate this to healthcare? I'm gonna use the um, example of estrogen or hormone replacement therapy in, among postmenopausal women. For many, many, many years, you know, we, uh, as a medical community, we've uh, really advocated for the use of hormone replacement therapy amongst postmenopausal women. And until the Women's Health Initiative trial came out and said, actually, you know, these things may cause heart attacks. <laughs> they actually cause more harm than good. And so there was a certain truth. And uh, we try and estimate that truth through something we call research. But do we really know what it is? I would argue that a long time ago when people were treating blood disorders with leeches, um, their belief was that that would be able to help. Um, whereas now our information's evolved, our understanding of truth has evolved, and we believe that that's probably not a good way to do things. Thank you for that answer. Well, uh, I, I didn't really think about science, which is something that I have been studying for the last however many years being a medical student. I didn't really think about science and research from that belief perspective. It's awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, 
I guess just to kind of expand on that in terms of how I got here more directly to answer your question. Um, when I was, uh, when I was an undergrad, um, uh, I, I was interested in maths and sciences and I come from a fairly humble upbringing and, uh, consideration for me is, all right, what am I going to do that has good demand? I can make a pretty good income and have a comfortable life, right? This is what a lot of people think about, but are afraid to say it. The reality is people actually want to have those considerations around quality of life, income, that sort of stuff. But I did kind of have a genuine interest in sciences. And uh, that took me to, all right, what's a good professional degree? But at the time, especially being raised as a, as a South Asian, you know, your, your options typically are engineer, doctor, or disgrace to the family. Um, and that's kind of how you're raised, right? Um, and so I, I thought about medicine. It was way too long and painful. Um, when I talked with people, they'd said, you know, don't do it. So that's why I looked for kind of weird, neat degrees, new degrees that were out there. And this thing called RMD was out there. And I said, okay, maybe I'll do that. Um, didn't have a program in Canada at the time uh, that was near Toronto, <laughs> where I was uh, I was raised in Guelph. Uh, so I, I went to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Went through four years, quickly realized, I don't know if this is that exciting for me, to be honest. I mean, this is terrific as a profession, but kind of need a bit more. So that's where I started looking at what's really exciting these days is how people make decisions around how you fund drugs. And those people have pharmacoeconomics backgrounds, or at least some understanding of it. So I'm going to do a fellowship in pharmacoeconomics because they control the money and they make the decisions. So I went and did a, a fellowship in pharmacoeconomics and outcomes research. And um, I wanted to be a bit of a purist. So I had asked um, a lot of clinicians who are trained in health economics, are they actually real economists? Like, do they actually do really real training in economics or is it just kind of you learn peripherally? And the answer was they kind of learn peripherally. So I said, actually, I want to learn pure economic principles. Um, the fellowship supervisor said, I'll pay for a degree if you want it. I said, great. So at night I would take classes and, uh, during the day I was in the hospital and at night I would take classes and I received a master of arts degree in econometric theory of all things. Why? I have no idea. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. I spent two years writing mathematical proofs, basically that I'll never get back, but it was actually pretty good uh, in terms of getting a deeper understanding. But then of course I realized, well, wait a minute, how can I communicate econometric principles to a healthcare community? So that's when I said, you know, the language is really important now in terms of communication. And that's where I went to Harvard to do a master's in public health and statistics and epidemiology of all things. And at that point I was so broke, I had to get a job. So, uh, I moved to Toronto. I was recruited there and, um, did a lot of observational epidemiology because, um, I had access to these really large data sets at the time. It was among the best environments in the world for doing health research. Because we had data, I think at that time, it was almost 14 million people um, from uh, birth to to um, uh, to grave. So it was really good comprehensive data on a lot of people. So did all sorts of studies, um, you know, looking at, well, why does this drug work better and have better outcomes in this patient population versus that patient population? And really digging into evidence-based medicine, which is a foundation of a lot of what we do. But I found it really difficult because uh, we published some really neat studies. Um, you know, I, we talked in, we published in journals like the New England and Lancet and all the big players and such. But it wasn't really ever that satisfying. 
Um, there are a couple of big hits that we had where some of our studies had actually removed major drugs from the international market because of safety concerns. Um, and that felt pretty good to actually uh, be able to have that sort of impact. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of issues. Drug A works better than drug B. Well, it's because people on drug A are healthier than people on drug B. So it's not really the drug, it's actually kind of the patient populations you're looking at, something called confounding or selection bias that really plagued these studies. So how do you get away from selection bias and confounding? You randomize. You do a randomized trot. So um, after several years of doing observational studies, uh, I linked in with drug policy decision makers and leveraged, leveraged the strength of, drug, of observational epidemiology to, to help really inform drug policy decision making. I quickly brought, realized all the limitations and said, you know, maybe we should do uh, more randomized trials. So I headed up the clinical trial center. I started that up. And uh, we ran lots of studies um, internationally in many countries. That was fairly satisfying. But then I thought, you know, that's not all that satisfying either. Because um, for a typical trial, you would exclude 80 to 90% of the patients that you would normally see. And the reason why you do that is really for statistical reasons. It's to increase homogeneity reduce heterogeneity and variance, so you actually have an easier time finding an effect. So the downside, though, is if I'm seeing a group of, let's say, 100 patients who have asthma, for example, and I use a randomized trial finding that excluded 80 to 90% of those patients, do you really expect me to use the results on the most of the patients that, that are there? It kind of sounds insane, doesn't it? But that's what we do. And because uh, nobody remembers the inclusion exclusion criteria at the trials. So it kind of left me thinking, all right, so we've got those limitations around randomized trials with respect to generalizability. And the real ironic thing is each of these studies has one point estimate that the world believes, right? You randomize 2,000 patients to group A versus group B, and you come up with a magical hazard ratio or risk ratio of 1.3, for example. Okay, for those 2,000 patients. Now, you know there's variance around the 1.3. So if you have a patient that doesn't follow the kind of norm, which is a lot of, are you going to apply that 1.3 and make your decision around it? A lot of us do. But there's got to be a better way to do it. So how do you actually leverage as much data as possible to make individual decisions for individual patients at the time that they need those decisions? That's where it evolved to AI and machine learning to really deliver or drive precision medicine, I guess you could say, based on data rather than genomic testing and such. So uh, a long way to say, you know, it was always about understanding what is true, what is optimal care, and, and the long pathway to get there using data research information uh, in a very knowledge-driven field, right? Uh, because again, if you think about how healthcare works, it's about diagnosis, prognosis, treatment, and then that leads to communication. Now, of course, you know, when you look at diagnosis, how do we make a diagnosis? Well, for some things, it's very easy, um, very straightforward. Other things, it's not, right? Um, and sometimes we have a challenge around it. So if we look at something as simple as asthma, it's not that simple, but I'm sure many people either have asthma or know people with asthma. Uh, there've been several studies, um, 
you in the U.S., one in Ottawa in Canada, for example, uh, brought in over 600 patients who were diagnosed and being treated for asthma. And they said, you know what, we're, what we're going to do is do proper spirometry, lung function tests and such, and see if you actually have asthma. And about a third of patients did not have asthma. Um, so we struggle there. And why do we struggle? Because for many disease, uh, in terms of diagnosis and such, we consider family history, social history, consider labs, vitals, medical imaging reports, that sort of thing. The average complex medical decision involves considering typically hundreds, if not a thousand parameters. But Miller from the 1950s, who's a famous psychologist, concluded that the average human can process seven plus or minus two things at the same time. So it's not really a fair fight. And then of course you go to treatment in between is prognosis. Because when you do treatment considerations, you typically think if this patient isn't going to do well, they're really going to struggle. I'm going to be very aggressive with my management and maybe pick one therapy or another. But if they're going to do okay, maybe I'll be a bit more gentle. Study after study after study has shown how poor we are at prognosis. And yet we make treatment decisions on it. And if you go to treatment, you look at conditions like multiple sclerosis or I'll even pick depression. First of all, oftentimes they don't get the diagnosis right because they have dysthymia and not depression. But let's say we've made the diagnosis. How many options do we have? From serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors to tricyclic antidepressants to bottom oxidase inhibitors. We have tons of options to treat um, depression. Let's say we have 15 to 20 of these drugs that we, we have options to choose from. How do we make that decision? I would argue the vast majority of clinicians will say, well, you know, I'm kind of used to using sertraline or Zoloft. I'm kind of used to doing that. So the drug rep that came in last week made a pretty good argument around it. Maybe that's the way or my friends use X and they seem to like it. And of course the research says, why? We don't really know. We pick one, we use it, see if it works. Two to four weeks, we call the patient back. Hopefully if it doesn't work, we try something else. And I go back to, there has to be a better way to do these things. Um, and a lot of it, because it's data-driven, is so amenable to machine learning and AI, and that's kind of why I ended up where I am now. That was such an awesome response. I mean, you hit basically how medicine works, starting from seeing a patient, diagnosing them, to coming up with a diagnosis, to coming up with a treatment, all in that one. And as I'm studying for my boards, you know, as I continue to move on into my medical career, a lot of the things you said, like diagnosis, for example, yeah, it does. It is all based on somebody running some stats on some power and we believed it. And you take that into consideration with the presenting clinical symptoms, which there could be so many along with family history and exposure history and all of those things. And then treatment there's so many different therapies and let's be honest how much do we actually remember of all of the different therapies available especially with new medicines coming wow yeah yeah i i yes you're right like with ai and machine learning there is that gap that ai could fill with using the data that it already has for precision medicine which you said i really like to add instead of like just evidence-based research yeah, I think there's a lot of potential for AI. That's why I'm excited about it. And that's why I'm doing what I do now. Um, you see, like, if you go back to um, lab tests, or even let's take the example of an MRI or a CT scan, 
you know, we feel like we're so sophisticated because we can actually see what's in the blood. And we forget sometimes that the average human has 70 to 100 trillion cells in their body. And each cell has about 100 trillion atoms. And if you believe in chaos theory, it just takes one go out of place and you have disease, right? Um, I don't, if you really kind of think about what an MRI does or a CT does, it's kind of a very crude blunt instrument. If you think about all the underpinnings of what's actually going on in that organ or that area of the body, we're just seeing a small snippet of it. Um, and yet, you know, we have so much confidence and faith because we believe that they are the ways to diagnose and manage and treat and may not always be true. Yeah. Um, so before I ask more about your work, I just want, I was curious about when did you start incorporating machine learning and AI into your research, into your work? Yeah, it was, um, it was actually in 2016, uh, there was a trip my boss and I made out to Hong Kong, um, to meet with folks in the Lee Cushing Foundation. And uh, Mr. Lee Cushing is the richest man in Asia, very wealthy philanthropist, very caring, kind individual who seemed to like our hospital in Canada. Um, and uh, we, when we had talked with them, they'd said, you know, we, we have this interest in data and how data can help people. And uh, at the time, I was very much into data and leveraging how it could potentially be used. And we said, you know, we, we have this uh, this thing called AI machine learning uh, that we think might be big in the future. And we were able to secure $10 million. We flew back to Toronto and said, uh oh, now we actually have to make it happen. Uh, looked at the state of data in our hospital and it was atrocious. Um, and uh, spent quite a bit of time, in fact, about three years creating an environment that enabled AI uh, because all the, the data pipelines and stuff had to actually be there and able to enable it. Uh, and then we, we actually took a very practical approach to things. Um, you know, we created the data environment. We hired data scientists, but the ones that we hired were really in response to what we were hearing from our end users, our clinicians, uh, mainly our administrative decision makers, our frontline staff, what do you struggle with every day? And there was a mountain of issues in healthcare, because this is not easy. There's so many issues. And, uh, you know, if, if you kind of look at some of the stats out there, some of the best evidence that we have suggests that 25 to 40% of patients get therapies or treatments that have no proven effectiveness or are potentially harmful. So the bar is kind of low, you know, um, and we were hearing all these issues and problems. We quickly realized there's different types of data scientists to address different types of problems. When we hired our, our data science team, at least the initial runs of it, we had a very simple rule. Our data scientists aren't allowed to ask the questions. Um, it has to come from our frontline staff. It has to come from end users, from clinicians who struggle with problems day to day. Those are the ones that we need to ask and engage and help us develop solutions that are going to meet their needs to make their lives easier. And so it was with that model where we said, you know, this whole AI thing, we see a ton of research, but the research is often quite meaningless, to be honest. Uh, the vast majority of published papers we've never, ever deploy because it's clear they didn't speak to a clinician or, um, the methods used were optimal. There has to be a mesh between the two. And, uh, that's how 
we believe AI is actually going to be useful. When it's driven by people with problems, so you get the right issues that you're addressing. The models are driven by people who are competent, so computer scientists, engineers who understand the technical side of things. And really solid processes around change management, behavior, management adoption, which end users typically understand and try. So it's very much a team sport um, that is a bit complex to orchestrate. This is how we were able to drive from idea to data, to ML machine learning model, to deployment, to impact. Yeah, that's, that, that's a, that's a very good point. But, um, what you said with AI and ML, it's, I mean, it's mainstream right now because of chat GPT, everybody's talking about it because of open AI, but there has been so much research happening in that sphere for so long. But like you said, it it was mainly just that research. It wasn't people-driven. It wasn't patient-driven. wasn't clinically used. Um, a lot of the use cases that you brought up, yeah, was, that's a very creative way and actually a very practical way to like look at a problem, like actually asking the people that are facing the problem that's going to be using this product rather than having a data science team that will likely not interact with patients come up with the questions. Yeah, absolutely. I, there's a, a paper, there's several now, um, where one of the first ones that I saw was during the pandemic and it reviewed over 400 studies that were published with all sorts of solutions for the pandemic, right? But the lens they took when they review it, reviewed it was not so much about, okay, I'm going to do a methodological review session. It was about, can these solutions be actually deployed into clinical practice and be useful for clinicians? And they deemed out of the 400, zero were actually usable. So uh, it kind of makes you pause a bit, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, that was actually a really good segue to our next part of the podcast where we talk a little bit about your projects and your work. Um, you mentioned how you know you went to Hong Kong and that was kind of like the conception point of the Li Kaohsiung Center for Healthcare Analytics Research and Training. Um, doing, doing my little research on your background, I also saw that you founded the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, um, the Li Kaohsiung Center for Healthcare Analytics Research and Training that we were talking about, and the Applied Health Research Center at the St. Michael's Hospital. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey to founding all of these organizations with great impact in every single one of them. No, I actually, uh, I've been, again, very fortunate. Um, but it was really out of just what I felt was the need to drive change. Uh, the first one out of the group was the Ontario Drug Ball. Actually, no, it was, it was uh, the ARC, yeah, the Applied Health Research Center. And that's where um, I was in this kick around um, uh, randomized trials. And it was really this notion of, you know, we should be doing more randomized trials because that's evidence-based medicine. I'm missing something, so let's let's start up a clinical trial center. Uh, the reason why I started it up is because in Toronto at the time, there wasn't a reasonably sized academic research organization to actually help investigators run or design and run randomized trials. So there was a need in the city. And I said, well, that's pretty ridiculous if our pretty large medical school, I think our medical school is... Uh, among the top five or six in the world. Um, we have a pretty good medical school. It's strong, yet we don't have a trial center. <laughs> um, so, and our folks are actually going out to other cities in the U.S. to actually find help to actually run these trials. So we said, no, we'll do it here. 
And the approach again we took was very much driven around uh, important clinical problems. Uh, people were coming to us who are world leading scientists to, to actually develop studies that we think would change care. So for example, uh, one of the studies we published in the New England really changed how we look at um, uh, monitoring for arrhythmias among stroke patients. It changed international guidelines and it's kind of the thing people do now, right? And that was published through, through the work that we did. Um, but at the same time, I was also thinking, all right, well, drug policy and, and the ARC, uh, the Allied Health Research Center grew from three to, I think there's about 60 staff now, uh, over a hundred studies in over 40 countries. Um, so it's actually picked up quite a bit of traction. Um, the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network was out of a frustration around how some policies are just not evidence-based at all. And, uh, probably should be. I mean, we try to do the best we can, but it's hard. And uh, so I had conversations with some of the policymakers in Ontario and they said, yeah, actually, you know what, if you can actually listen to us and give us the information we need at the time we need it, uh, then we would actually uh, would love to have a collaboration and partnership. It was difficult because when issues hit policymakers, um, sometimes they have some time. Other times, this ended up in the newspaper. I need to act in the next two weeks. Otherwise, uh, my minister or whomever is going to come down hard on me. And uh, if you can't give me good information by that time, ship us it. So we literally had to put in a process where we, uh, we had experts from all around the country, the academics, and we had to tell them, this is not about you. If you're going to be part of this network and you want publications in an academic career, hang up the phone right now because it's not going to happen. This is about generally making impact at the policy level. We'll call you when we need you, but there will be a team of data analysts. We'll have immediate access to data. We will generate relevant information and flip it to policymakers within days to weeks. It has to be that rapid. And so we created the environment to do it. And uh, we were able to shape, I think one of the first projects we took on was this policy that was not evidence-based at all around um, testing uh, blood sugar levels of our patients with diabetes. So blood glucose test strips was a huge deal and we were finding people were hoarding these strips. It was completely inappropriate use. Developed a policy that um, in real dollars was saving a hundred million over five years for the, for the government uh, and led to more appropriate use. Uh, and then of course there were, uh, I think it shaped, uh, I want to say at least 40 to 50 different drug policies since inception. So things that would actually really, really help drive decision-making. Uh, because, you know, the, the government didn't really have much of an idea around, well, what are the utilization patterns? What are the outcomes that we're seeing based on X, Y, or, or Z um, decisions we've made in the past? How does then that translate to new decisions? And so the ODPRN, or Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, is still in existence. It's um, still engaged with the government, and uh, not will continue to be so. Um, um. Yeah, it's neat. But then again, you know, I, I kind of then started focusing on, it's great that we've had population impact uh, at the provincial level. We've had international impact around trials and some of the stuff that we've done in the observational epidemiology. But I'm based at a hospital in downtown Toronto. And I kept thinking, what is it that we can do for Mr. Jones on this, in this bed on 14 Carmel Carter? And, all, and he's not going to do well. Is there anything we can do for him? And that's where, you know, I was enamored by this whole concept of 
use data to actually understand if he's not going to do well. If he isn't, what can you do about it and how much of an impact is that going to be? Or that one single patient going back to that precision medicine to improve his care. Yeah. That's, oh my gosh, that's really cool. I mean, you talked about, you know, your journey from starting up the Applied Health Research Center to ODPR and, and you kind of segued into still thinking about that one patient. You were working at this downtown Toronto hospital and that was, that was, that was where you're caring for the actual person at the end. Um, with now you shifting to since 2016 on like, you know, machine learning and AI utilization, can you talk to us about a project that showcases the impact of utilizing machine learning and AI on patient care? Sure, I can give you a few examples. Um, but uh, why don't we pick one that's a bit more mature um, at the patient care level then. Uh, so at our hospital, I have a team of 30 data scientists and we have close to 50 now AI solutions that are running as we speak. Um, one of them is called Chartwatch. And it was led, uh, it is led actually um, by a, a brilliant internist, uh, Dr. Roel Burma, who, you know, had this really simple thought. He said, you know, patients usually come to hospitals for one main thing, and that's to not die. So could we help them not die? And, uh, you know, we thought that's probably a good goal. Um, so what do we mean by that? Well, okay, about one out of 12 or so patients will die in the hospital or in, in internal medicine. And if we do an audit, we realize that about 40% of these patients, there's probably not much you're going to be able to do about it. They're going to die regardless of what you do. But half or more than half of these patients could probably have intervened. Um, and then, of course, we go into workflow issues, right? Okay, well, why is that patient deteriorating or why didn't you catch it earlier? Well, the internists say, I've got a million things to do. I can spend maybe 10 patients with a patient on a given day, and then I'm off doing my other stuff. The nurses are there, sure, but they have a lot of other patients to manage, and they're swamped. So who's watching? And uh, the thought was fairly simple. Can we have AI watch these patients? And when these patients uh, run into a, a high-risk uh, category, can we actually be alerted so we can actually see what's happening and take care of them better? And we said, that's yeah, I think we could. We looked at other early warning systems that were out there. And, you know, we found other warning systems like News, for example, the National Early Warning System in the UK. Uh, I think 70 to 80% of the hospitals in the UK actually use News or are supposed to use News. And the way it works is a nurse enters vitals, gets a bit of a score and says, aha, this patient's at high risk. But it's very manual. It's very cumbersome. And what we found is it's not very accurate. We wanted to know if machine learning is going to add value. Uh, what we kept hearing from people is beating their chest saying, I have 92% accuracy on my algorithm. And of course, you know, we would look back and say, yeah, but how good are the clinicians? Because if you're at 92 and the clinicians are at 95, it's not a good algorithm. It's not going to help them, right? Now, if you have an algorithm that says you're at 75% accuracy, but your clinicians are at 54%, that's a good algorithm. That's going to be useful there. So how good are clinicians? So we actually spent months on the floors and we asked our doctors, nurses, and our, and our residents as they were actually wandering the halls, do you think this patient's going to die or the ICD? So we were able to collect over 3,000 clinician predictions. And now we published that paper 
And we were able to show that our clinicians beat news, not by a little, by a lot, right? So would we ever deploy news in our clinical practice? Absolutely not, because there's no value in it. Yet countries like the UK are doing this and we're saying, are we missing something? We have to develop an algorithm that beats our clinicians. And we know that we have to beat them, not by a little, but enough for them to find value. So this is where we actually developed the algorithm called ChartWatch. We trained in on over 20,000 patients worth of data. And the key drivers uh, around prediction are demographics, labs, and vitals. So the way it works is every hour on the hour, it uh, predicts if a given patient is going to die or go to the ICU. So it's constantly running every hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it categorizes patients as low, medium, and high risk. As soon as it reaches the high risk threshold, our protocol is uh, pages the medical team and the medical team has to come and see the patient within two hours of being paged. And there's all sorts of care pathways. There's the consider increased monitoring to Q4, uh, look for signs of sepsis and issue antibiotics, all that sort of stuff are laid out. And um, we've deployed this in October of 2020, uh, right in the middle of the pandemic because we saw our mortality rates go up. And uh, it's been running for a little over two years now. And uh, we're just writing up the paper now. The conservative estimate is a 26% reduction in mortality. And uh, it's because the clinicians are just being alerted to be at the time where they're needed rather than waiting until the next day when the poor patient has already started to deteriorate and may not come back from it. That's huge, 26%. Mm. Awesome. Congrats on that. that especially for an algorithm that was implemented during COVID. I mean, I'm sure that probably also had some roles to play in that, but it's possible. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a tough time where people were looking for solutions, right? And uh, we're, we're thrilled that AI, we think, can actually save lives. Um, there's lots of other examples, too, um, uh, around maybe an operational example. Our nurses would scream about um, how hard it is with staffing and uh, simple things like, for example, allocating nurses to the different zones in the emergency department. Um, you know, they came to us with that problem. And we said, are you kidding me? Is there, are you going to use this for? And he said, no, it's one of the top three stressors that we have because there's all sorts of rules that a junior nurse can't be with the senior, sorry, junior nurse has to be with the senior nurse, has to be with the team lead, can't work in the same zone with the same person over the past 48 hours. And uh, all these rules are complex, so it takes us between two to four hours every day on these assignment tasks. And our error or repeat rate is about 21%. We do this on Excel on our paper. So we built this optimization algorithm where it actually tracks, it watches all the nurses, who worked, where, with whom, when, all that sort of stuff it does. And you click the button and it'll actually assign and do your assignments for the next four days. And if somebody calls up and sick, and sick does the optimization again and uh, redoes everything. And it's we've noticed that um, within weeks of deployment, the amount of time we spent went from two to four hours every day to under 15 minutes. And uh, the repeater error rate went from 21% to under 5%. So again, using AI to help nurses be more efficient, to give them more time to care for patients, um, it is the right thing to do. That's, that's awesome. So what was the implementation process like for both of those projects and in general, what is the process like? 
Yeah, we have a fairly simple process. It was a bit risky and we were actually wondering if this would blow up or work. Um, but basically our model is very simple. We don't go and chase people. Um, people with brilliant ideas will come to us because they need to be passionate about it. They need to fill out an intake form. And the intake form isn't too onerous, um, but basically it, it uh, goes through what's the current state. Do you have any data on the current state in terms of what outcomes you're looking at and how it's not very efficient? Walk us through that. What's your workflow like? It then also goes through um, what would an AI solution look like to you? Like how would it help? Um, we then have a box that actually outlines outcome. So what are the outcome metrics that you're going to hit? And it's not a pretext box. You have choices. Your choices are fairly focused. Our choices are death, readmission, length of stay, human effort, cost, or other. And if you click other and that's the only box you click, you're automatically deprioritized. We're very clear on the outcomes that we want to hit. And once you tell us what outcome or outcomes you're going to hit, the next session is saying, let's say we do this. How much are you going to decrease it by? Because if we develop it and we deploy it, we want to meet those metrics. And if we don't, we have to have a conversation around why. And we have to sunset the project if, it just, if it's not working to how we thought it would work. Um, luckily, we've been fortunate. Most of our projects actually do meet the targets that we set out. And so we're actually thrilled about how it comes about. But it's because of this vetting process around making sure that the end users are passionate. They drive the projects. They fill out the forms. They tell us what they want to hit. And we have a whole team that helps them with deployment. And then we actually evaluate. That's how we actually get at the outcomes we are seeing today. Right. That makes sense. So it's basically driven by the end users who are coming up with the project ideas. And I'm assuming they're probably at project meetings with leadership with the data science team weekly, bi-weekly, whatever it is to talk about where they're at with things. Exactly. Our meeting schedule that we recommend, and this is what most projects that we take on do, is bi-weekly. And uh, the end users are expected to be at those meetings. And in fact, they lead many of them. All right. So when do you determine as a team that maybe this is when we pull the plug on this particular project? And what does that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So we have a fairly extensive feasibility um, assessment. So, um, you know, when people present ideas or data engineers and our data scientists are typically busy doing a lot of homework around the data to do this. And we find that in most cases, the data aren't there or the quality isn't sufficient and we pull the plug right then. Uh, I think we only have like a maybe one or two examples where we went through the whole process and then realized, oh my gosh, what did we do? Uh, this project is not going to work. It's, it's pretty rare because we build in some pretty good uh, fail-safes during the feasibility assessment. What insights have you learned that you would like to share with our listeners with this whole process of coming up with projects, implementing them, and not maybe speaking more broadly other than projects? In, in your long journey with founding different networks, research networks, founding different groups, and then having the impact that you have, what, what insights have you gained thus far? Yeah, I think um, uh, purpose is a big thing. Um, know why you're doing what you're doing. And if the purpose, and, and there's no judgment here, if your purpose is to make money, state it and go after it. Your purpose is to help people, state it and go after it. But be very clear about why you're doing what you're doing. 
Yeah, our incentives actually sometimes cloud that sense of purpose, right? So if you're in academic medicine, you're going to chase, going from lecturer to assistant professor to associate to full professor. Um, as much as people say they look at impact, the reality is you're going to be judged on well, how much money you bring in through your grants, how many publications you have, and where you publish. It doesn't have to be about impact or implementation or anything like that. You have a different purpose in that respect. Um, if your purpose is to make money, well, then go into private sector. Um, it, it's, it's a different angle. But if your purpose is to help people, you're going to be much more clear about what you want to do and how you're going to get there. Once you've actually understood what your purpose is, then I would say carve out a pathway and commit to it. Uh, funding and resources are incredibly important. And I can't tell you how important it is to really hold up on your communication skills and be genuine about it. Because when you go to secure resources, people usually fund the person and not so much the idea. Uh, the idea, of course, will get you to the, to the door, but they kind of look and say, all right, is this person going to be able to execute, deliver? Is this somebody who I want to work with? If those communications aren't up to snuff, it's going to be a bit of a harder sell. Um, so I would say, know your purpose, really focus on understanding your idea and committing to it, as well as your communication skills and styles. Being able to secure those resources and then being absolutely disciplined in terms of how you're going to be able to deploy it. Or sorry, how you're going to be able to implement your idea. The implementation, uh, the last thing that I'll say is when you execute your idea, it's rare, really, really rare. It's not impossible. It's really rare that you're going to do it on your own. Making sure you understand the skill sets that you need, the types of people that you're going to be able to bring on, the team that you form around you is going to make or break you. So a lot of people will go in and they'll say, you know, I, and I hear this all the time. So uh, I'm a clinician, I'm a physician or a nurse or a physiotherapist or whatever have you, and I'm going to do AI. And, you know, I typically poke a little bit and say, all right, do you have any technical expertise in the AI, in the AI space? Do you have any foundational understanding in statistics or computer science? Do you have any foundational understanding in mathematics? How can it be effective if you don't? And so if you're going to play in the area, know a bit about the area, really, really commit to it, then you're going to be able to understand not only for yourself, but who you're going to bring on to work with you. Because especially in the area of machine learning and AI, it is very much a team sport. And if you don't know which team members to recruit, you're not going to win any games. That was solid advice with figuring out your purpose and then carving out the path, how you're going to get there and recruiting resources and then being disciplined around implementation with your communication skills, teamwork skills. I'm, I think I'm going to take that with me and bring on to the projects that I'll be working on next. That, that's, that's super cool. That's how, great. how do you successfully manage the various roles and projects that you're actively working on? Yeah, it's, it's about the teams. Um, we spend a lot of time on making sure we get the right people to work with. And I find um, uh, people will complain about, you know, I, I'm heading up this one initiative and it's because the team isn't great. They spend a lot of time trying to fix it themselves and things fail. Um, just to give you an example, uh, we're in the very fortunate position of being in Toronto, which actually does have a good AI ML uh, community. Uh, our interview process is 
not that strange from a private sector perspective, but from public sector, it is pretty strange. At least that's what I found. Um, I'll give you the example of a junior data scientist. Uh, we posted for a position a few months ago. We had over 300 applications, which was wonderful. We narrowed it down to about 15 or so. And our first point of contact is not an interview. It's a technical test. So we asked them if they're willing to take a technical test. Most say yes. So then what we do is we email them and we tell them from the time of this email, you have three hours to respond. Uh, there's a data set that we give you of a list of questions. We need you to actually address those questions, send us your code and your output, and then we'll do an assessment of the technical skills. So that's phase one. Phase two then says, okay, typically out of the 15, maybe three or four, two or three, something like that, we'll pass it because it's a bit of a tough test. Those are the ones that we invite for an interview. The interview is more focused on the social side of things. And the thing that we typically ask our interviewers this is the type of person you want to have coffee with or hang out with. Um, we ask them some technical questions, but it's really more socially focused. And then, of course, the last part of the interview is uh, we use the own personality assessment, um, but we ask them to take a personality test because that actually has been pretty helpful to us to understand, is this a person who's going to drive and really own versus more of a team player versus somebody who's just going to follow somebody who's more aggressive versus less aggressive because different types of teams will need different types of people. So for example, when we do project deployment and change management, you need a leader you need somebody to go in and own it and they are, they're in it. Whereas for other teams, you don't want that because then they dominate and other people feel kind of not so great about it. Um, so really try to understand how that social fit comes in is what we go through to, to develop our teams. Um, if you don't take that time and energy and thoughtfulness around who you recruit and how you recruit, you're going to end up with a very dysfunctional team and you're going to end up doing all that work. So the secret to all this, I think, is being very clear about what you want to do, your ideas and such, but making sure you get the right team around you who will be able to execute your vision. That sounds like a very intentional process of selecting the people that works in your team it has to be yeah absolutely what is it like being a leader in this space do you find that you're making more of an impact now than you did when you started off in your career you gotta say you know what the funny thing is i don't really kind of knew um uh, myself as a leader to be honest uh, i'm just someone trying to make a difference uh to the patients we serve at our hospital uh, there are lots of people I look up to and say, wow, uh, they're doing some really neat stuff. Um, I would say we've been able to be successful um, because what I bring to the table is a little bit of understanding of a different, uh, of a number of different areas. And then to be able to pull a team together who is able to then execute on it. Um, if we have success, great. I guess we could consider ourselves leaders, but I would say for people in this space, don't get hung up on, on trying to be a leader. <laughs> Just focus on your purpose and do the right thing. And if it succeeds, people will notice. And I guess I guess I'll call you a leader, but it's not about that, is it? Focus on your vision. I'll remember that for myself. Uh, that was a nice segue to the next question that I have for you. What's your future vision? Um, any projects that you currently have in the pipeline? 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I've, we've been kind of obsessed a little bit about uh, multimodal data, graph methods and such to, uh, to look at all sorts of different types of data. You know, when I look at the landscape right now, internationally, um, I still see a lot of hype in AI. Uh, I think generative AI is going to be a game changer. I think it'll take us a little bit of time to figure out how to optimally use it. But I'm kind of, maybe while everyone's distracted with, with generative AI, I'm, I'm kind of working a bit more on, on some of the basics that people I don't think have quite got down yet. So what do I mean by that? Um, we have, uh, AI is going to be driven by data, right? And one will then say, well, what types of data? And we focus on the clinical data quite a bit. We have three core data platforms that we either have established or will establish. Our clinical data platform, I think is pretty solid. Um, and I'm happy with it. Our medical imaging platform, we've just developed. So we're really now aggressively getting into medical imaging projects. Um, and we have a couple that we've launched, but we're going to be doing much more in the medical imaging space through vision learning and such. And then the third is around waveform data, those monitors and those ventilators, and how do we get data out of those? So, uh, we'll be launching it's to my knowledge will be the first ICU in the world where we will have this environment that hooks up. I think we've got 20 ICU beds that are going to be on it. Uh, I believe we're targeting this fall where we're going to be constantly streaming waveform data in real time that will be running through ML algorithms. Uh, but the trick here is you can do pieces of this, but how do you assimilate all of it together? Right? So you can imagine that uh, we will be shortly, I would say within the next year in a position where we're going to be streaming data from monitors, from ventilators. As soon as an image comes in, the algorithm sucks that in and actually not only looks at the report, but the actual image streaming in lab data and vitals data. That's going to be a ridiculous amount of data for these algorithms to feed off of. Now, one will argue that if you think from an economics perspective, the marginal rate, uh, marginal rate of return on information will, of course, plateau at a certain point. But my belief is that because of these data, uh, data sources being so disparate, they'll all add unique and valuable additional data inputs to the ML algorithm to improve performance. Um, so that's kind of where we're headed in terms of multimodal, really figuring out the engineering around it to make it work um, with a bit of an eye on gentlemen. That's I, the waveform data and how you're collecting that in an ICU, from an ICU from ventilators and all of the other monitors that a patient just hooked up to. That's really cool. I have an engineering background and I'm, like you said, like I'm trying to think what that's going to look like because that's not a discrete variable. It's a continuous format of data. It's a continuous variable. And I, I'm curious to see what they cook up to get data from that and actually decipher it. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of moving pieces. In fact, we had to go to Spain, the U.S., and our compression technology is actually coming in from sick kids here, that some, for some academics, because we don't know of anything that can actually handle what we want to do. So we, we're kind of MacGyvering or piecemealing a few things to make it work. Our data engineers are fantastic. Um, but I'm hoping this is where we head in the future, and uh, there are some groups or startups or companies or whatever that actually take this and actually make a more comprehensive prod product so we don't have to MacGyver all these things together. Oh, that's really cool. 
So with all of the projects you're working on um, uh, with the hospital, with the groups that you're involved in, do you still, are you still practicing then? Um, are you actually seeing patients involved in clinical care? No, actually, I haven't done clinical work in a while, unfortunately. I had to make that decision a while back. Um, and it was unfortunate because I, I, I did enjoy clinical practice, but after a while, it did kind of get to be a bit routine, to be honest. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I don't know, I like doing different things. Uh, I guess I kind of get antsy a bit after a while. So uh, I miss it, yeah, but do I regret it? No. Um, and I think it's very personal. So other people should absolutely not give up their clinical responsibilities and their skills because that's what they love doing. Um, and for me, again, I had a pretty long hard thought around what is my purpose? Um, and, uh, it led me down to, well, if I had to pick a few things and maintain my sanity, I think this is the path I'm going to need to take. Um, so it's a very personal decision. That makes sense. Thank you for that response. Um, it's yeah, going back to that purpose, it it really does sound like everything that you've done up to this point has been very purpose driven, which is probably why it's so organic. Like even you talking about all these things, like it's cohesive. I think it has to be. Um, health is cohesive, right? We function as a cohesive unit, yet as disciplines, we actually separate out nephrology from neurology, from you know, uh, from orthopedics and that's not how our body works, right? No one doesn't work in isolation of the other. So I think we have to be cohesive in many respects. Yeah. Um, so we have reached the last part of our interview. Um, and now we're just going to ask like more fun questions and get to know a little bit about you outside of your work. But before that, um, this is something that we ask all of our guests. What do you expect as the future of AI and medicine or big data and healthcare and maybe where we will be in 10 to 20 years? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think we're, we're entering it in this phase of, I think the technologies are evolved. Uh, there's a lot of potential for AI, but we're getting into this more human element now where our trust hasn't caught up to the technology. And so we still have a lot of questions. We have some fear. Um, it's still a bit unknown because the, the, the impacts are starting to become real, right? Um, it's, it's ironic because we've been using Google Assistant, Siri, and all that stuff for years and years, right? But as soon as generative AI kicks in and now we can actually address medical questions, we're now saying, whoa, wait a minute. Hallucinations. How bad is this? This is like awful. It's getting it wrong without really understanding, but it's getting it wrong less than you are. Um, and how do I trust that it's uh, less wrong than I am? I can't tell you how often we've actually had to have discussions with clinicians who've thought, I know this is going to change the world, but my colleagues, my colleagues aren't so sure because their belief, their trust isn't there because they feel that they're better than the AI. And us being able to demonstrate that, no, you know what, actually it's better. Um, when we look at, um, our, our response rates, for example, um, uh, when we looked at how often clinicians got it right with respect to predicting death in ICU transfer, it wasn't pretty, um, you know, people would walk in and say, I'm great at this. And when we showed them the statistic of, well, whenever you say they're going to die, you're right. 
less than a third of the time. It's kind of humbling. But we have these grandiose notions of how good we are and how the bar is supposed to be for AI. And I think it's going to take time for us to understand that, for us to be able to socially accept it and trust it. So my sense is I think we're going to go through a lot of philosophical uh, soul-searching over the next few years. Uh, it's AI is slowly going to start chipping away and showing us the value. We're then going to start slowly embracing it and being a bit more open. And we'll start seeing more automation with AI. And that's going to scare a lot of people because right now it's a lot of what we do in healthcare is human in the loop, right? This is a thing that'll help you make decisions. You're going to be the ultimate decision maker. And I think as we gain more trust, you'll make the decision for you. And I think if we do it right, I think we'll see that it actually helps us make better decisions. That will be a really interesting future to live in. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think it'll come in time. It won't come right away. But, um, uh, and, and there won't be, it won't replace us for sure. Oh, yeah. But it will replace a lot of things we do. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe some of the mundane things. I, I would be happy with that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I would argue the definition of mundane is going to change over time. Yeah. What advice would you give to your 25-year-old self looking back? Be patient. Um, I, I was always a very impatient person, wanted things to move today. Um, but things take time, especially when we talk about people, systems, processes. We're creatures of habit. Um, new things scare people. Be patient. Um, stick with purpose. If you believe something to the core, go with it and just give yourself time. And any particular advice for anybody starting out their career in the medicine and the machine learning space? Yeah, uh, be very multidisciplinary. So if you're in healthcare or medicine or clinical discipline, learn about AI, learn about comp sci, learn about stats, just be open and learn. If you're a data scientist, learn about healthcare, learn about medicine, uh, get, get principles going around uh, how people make weird, wonderful decisions, understand each other. Um, you have to be open to learning uh, in disciplines that you may not be comfortable with. And I think that's going to take you far. Great advice. I need to do that myself. I think I need to go take a stats class myself, actually. <laughs> no, it's painful, but uh, I think we'll all be better for it, right? Yeah, I agree too. Now, I'm going to ask you some fun questions to close our interview. Um any hobbies or anything else you'd like to talk about before I ask the last couple questions? Yeah, uh, hobbies. Yeah. Uh, you know what, actually, so it, video games. I like playing video games whenever I have time. Um, I, I used to, to try and get out and play sports a lot more than I do now, unfortunately. Um, I was uh, uh, into soccer and volleyball, but uh, time has been bit tough. Uh, I've got Diablo 4 sitting just waiting for me to play it. I haven't had time yet, but as soon as I have time, I'm going to open that thing up and play it. So, uh, and my daughter, I have a 17-year-old who likes to play video games. She never wants to play with me because that would be weird. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say uh, um, sports, watching, used to be playing, but uh, video games. Thing, yeah. Awesome. Um, anything else other than Diablo 4 that you're looking forward to playing? 
Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I love eighties. Uh, that's the thing that is a quick thing. Grab your Nintendo and you know, play five minutes there, 10 minutes there. Um, and Elden Ring. So, um, you know, that's a big thing to, I still haven't opened and played either, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's a bunch sitting there that I actually impulsively buy and say, I'm going to play it. And then, you know, a month later, I'm like, open it. So I was going to ask you what brings you joy, but it sounds like maybe video games, but anything else other than video games that brings you joy? You know, it's funny, as, as I get older, um, family is really, really important. And, um, really, really important for me to actually um, have that relationship with um, my wife, my daughter, my parents, and uh, really realizing it's all about people um, because uh, all these things will come and go. And if you don't spend enough time with the ones you love, um, yeah, you'll wonder why. Oh, well, I was going to ask you uh, what gives your life meaning, but you summed it up pretty well there. Unless you want to add anything else about the meaning of life. No, I think uh, meaning on separate levels. I think um, I would want to know that in my life, um, personally, I've actually had connections with people. And uh, quite frankly, I'm not very good at that because of all the demands on time and such. But family, spend time with them for sure. Um, but I would say I'd also want to know that I've impacted others. And um, I think knowing that um, the work that I do helps Mr. Jones on 14 Carmel Carter and uh, potentially helps save that life is really encouraging. When uh, we published a paper in the New England um, looking at gadafloxacin, it was actually a student project. Uh, a student came to me and said, you know, like, I think this drug causes dysglycemia. So we should look into it. It was something called gadafloxacin or Tequin at the time. And... Uh, we were able to show that it has a pretty large effect on dysglycemia. We published it, fast-tracked in the New England. It was pulled from the international market within uh, three months. And uh, that people have done kind of figured out estimates uh, affecting hundreds of thousands of people and preventing hospitalizations, diabetic comas and such. Knowing that that sort of an impact can be had makes me feel better too. So it's, all about, again, people at the end of the day whether it's family, by a close circle, or the broader circle around society and humanity. Uh, that's what makes me happy. Oh, wonderful response. And that concludes all of my questions for today. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Mambani. I learned so much, and I'm excited to continue following you on your journey and seeing all the wonderful things that's going to come out of all of the teams that you're a part of. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. And uh, good luck at you, your future leader. So um, I, to all the folks who are young and students and such, I just want to remind you. So ChatGPT, the whole thing around transformers is what's driving generative AI these days. Published by a student, an undergrad, and, uh, and people at Google. That's changed how we actually look at AI these days in terms of transformer-based models. It's coming from the young folks. You're going to be the one driving our future. And uh, I want to encourage as many people as possible to, to really, th there's such talent out there, such intelligence, such brightness, and such passion and leadership there. Follow what you think is the right thing to do. Define that purpose and move on it. Because my personal interest is you're going to be taking care of me when I'm older. So I want to make sure that you guys do a fantastic job. So thank you. Thank you for the inspiration. I'm going to carry that with me. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Ramboni. Thank you. Take care.